So this past week, I was in Colorado, uh, Denver and Colorado Springs. Who's ever been to Colorado? Beautiful place. Absolutely gorgeous. When I saw the mountains, I thought God must have been like, no hands. I spoke and it became. Mountains rose up, 14,000 feet tall. Absolutely beautiful. And so I was in a car, a rental car, with a friend and business associate, and it was one of the most uh, humbling times of my life. This is a person I've known for a long time, and we're also working on a few projects, but we got to talking about uh, our families. And uh, I told him, you know, uh, Michael, I, I feel like sometimes I have not measured up to what my parents wanted me to be. I said, Michael, I'm just going to be real with you. That's how I feel. We've talked a lot. We've gotten deep. I feel like I can tell you this. And first of all, that feeling was illogical because my parents have been the most amazing parents in the world. I'm putting that pressure on myself. They're not putting it on me. I'm chasing this dream of wanting to become what I think my parents want me to become. It's not necessarily real. It's just what I'm putting on myself. And in that moment, I actually teared up a little bit. And I said, Michael, you know what? The moment I met Jesus, when I was six or seven years old, I'm not sure, I made it then, the moment I met Jesus, when my childhood wasn't even a third over. That was the moment of maximum achievement in my life. I cannot go higher than the moment I, as a child, met Jesus. I cannot succeed more than in the moment I met Jesus. So who am I to complain that I didn't become what I was supposed to become, even though that's illogical, when I've become everything in Christ? If I had met Jesus and spent the rest of my life dejected, no skills, no abilities, but were passionate for him and had committed my life to showing him off to the world, I would have succeeded more than if I had not met Jesus but accomplished everything else the world sets out for me. That is success. If you have met Jesus if you have encountered him, if you have given your life to him, committed your heart to him, and made the daily commitment to repent or turn from sin, as sin would pull you this way, you're saying, no, 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 I'm turning this way. If that's your life, you are victorious. You are successful and you are done. You have arrived. Everything else is a bonus. Everything else is secondary. This morning, we're going to tag our text, living from victory, not for victory. Living from victory, not for victory. Let's look at 1 John Five, one through five. First John five, one through five. Verse one Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that 
we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You may be seated. So, verse 1 shows us that believing in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which means uh, believing that He is fully God, equal in essence to God the Father, and believing that Jesus carries in Himself all of God's power, and that He is the Messiah. To believe all that is an indication, evidence, that one has been born again. If you believe this about Jesus, you have been changed by God. To say this another way, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the love of God must have radically come into your life at some point and changed your thinking outside of merely your own will. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know, I think my life would go better if I started to believe Jesus is God. If I started to believe he's the Messiah, if I totally let go of sin and gave it all to him, I think I might be a better person. You don't just do that casually. If you believe this about Jesus, that means God has rocked your world. This is reinforced in John 1.12. John 1.12. We're going to be skipping along the Bible today. John 1.12. Let's take a look. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To believe in the name of Jesus is not to believe that the name Jesus exists. It's to believe in the name. We're going to talk some grammar today. To believe in the name of Jesus is to put your entire confidence and trust in the person of Jesus. If you do that, that means something has happened to you. Another way to say it is, without God working in your life, it's impossible to believe in Jesus as God and totally give yourself to him. We need God's power to see Jesus rightly. In addition, let's look at John 8.42. John 8.42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So, look at the condition Jesus sets up here. If God were your father, you would love me. Reverse that. If you love Jesus, that means God is your father. If you do not have God as your father, the logic continues, you cannot fully love Jesus. God needs to do something in you to make you see Jesus rightly and love him purely as he is. So it's clear. When the love of God affects you in a saving way like this, you simply can't think of Jesus as example or teacher the way the world does. If God has rocked your heart, you cannot simply say Jesus was a good teacher or example. It's intellectually dishonest. You know that it's not true. If you are genuinely a believer, you can't just say he was equal to Muhammad, to Buddha, to Hare Krishna, a good example, a teacher. In fact, I would hope that if I said this to you right now, Jesus was just one of many great examples. I hope that makes your stomach churn a little bit. I really do. Jesus is a great guy. Let's invite him over for barbecue. 
Let's see what he has to say. He's really wise. It's insulting, isn't it? You know it's wrong. You feel it in your gut. We can't talk about Jesus like that. That's the power of God in you. Saying it another way, remember this, there is a distinct difference between believing that Jesus is good and believing that Jesus is God. We can't just say he's good. He is God. And again, just like we read in John 1.12, it shows us that believing that Jesus is God is an indication that something special has happened in your life. So do a heart check really quickly here at the outset. The first step to victory is being born again. The first step to victory is being born again. And you are not born again if you do not believe that Jesus is God. I'll say that again. You are not born again if you do not believe Jesus is God. Or, if you believe that Jesus is God, but that Jesus is not the only God, or the only path to God. I had a discussion with a friend who said, I absolutely believe that Jesus is God. Of course, he's God. But, I don't think that Jesus, if he were a loving God, would be the only path to God. So that means, according to my friend's logic, and he's not a dumb guy, he's very smart, he's way smarter than I am. My friend said, if Jesus is a loving God and he's fully God, then Jesus would listen to the prayer of him who prays to Allah on behalf of Muhammad. So my friend was saying, Jesus is God, he is, but for the person who does not explicitly trust in Jesus, but maybe is trying to find God another way, Jesus will still listen to him, and Jesus will accept him. I don't know what's happening in my friend's heart, but he's not dumb, and he has wrestled with these issues for a long time. I seriously question whether he has truly believed in Jesus as God. I seriously question whether this brother's a Christian. I love him, I care for him, but if you can't say that Jesus is not only God, but the one true God, and the only path to God, then how can you... Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus go on the cross and be tortured and killed and suffer at the hands of us, the people he made, if there were another way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he said. So be careful. Be careful when you hear people say, I believe in Jesus, I believe that he's good, and I even believe that he's God, but I don't necessarily believe that Jesus would want it to be just through him. Be very careful when people say that to you. Not only is believing that Jesus is God, turning from sin and submitting to his lordship, the beginning of your victory... Brothers and sisters, it's also the end. You cannot rise higher than the moment in which you trust in Jesus as God. You only go sideways. You develop skills, you get better, you might get a house, you might make a salary, but that does not dictate your victory. Don't let money get in the way of your wealth. I don't think you caught that. Don't let money get in the way of your wealth. You trust in Jesus, you submit to him, you repent from sin, turn to him. In that moment, you are here. Maximum blessing. Maximum victory. And then everything else is just a bonus. Everything else is just stuff that you do to get other people in the direction of the victory you already have. You do not start at the bottom of the mountain with Jesus. You get helicoptered to the top, and then you build camps up there, and then you build ropes down and ladders down, and then you help others get there too. I am not climbing. You are not climbing. Corporate ladder. 
Everything you do outside of and after being saved by Christ is horizontal motion. It does not make you higher in the ladder of success. It's just other stuff you build while you're already up here. Other stuff you do. Who's the youngest Christian in this room? All right, she got it. I am no more successful than the voice of that little one. If that little one is a Christian, and I pray that the Lord will confirm that in this person's life, then I'm, we're equals. Absolutely. No more successful. You cannot adopt a right view of success if you are clinging to a wrong view. Make the decision to let go of the world's view of success. Make the decision to do it. Go on and, and get what you need to do. Get your education, earn your salary, whatever you need to do. But don't say that that's success. Say that that helps the success you already have. Many esteem Jesus highly. After all, he is the most famous human being in history. But it is not often that someone will say that Jesus is Lord. Many will call him good. Few will call him God. So here are three reasons. Three reasons why the confession that Jesus is Lord is particularly unique and indicative that one has been born again. Here are three reasons that the confession that Jesus is Lord indicates that one has been genuinely born again. First, they've chosen to believe Jesus is deity. If someone says Jesus is God or Jesus is Lord, they've chosen to believe in his deity, his position and equality with the Father. For one to understand that Jesus is Lord means that they understand that all other gods and conception of God or pathways to God are false and that Jesus is the one true God. When, when Jesus says, I am Lord, that means I am exclusively Lord. And when a person says Jesus is Lord in this way, they are affirming the exclusivity of Jesus the way that you affirm the exclusivity of your spouse. You don't have side people in your marriage. I hope not. It's just you and your spouse. It's one. It's exclusive. The same with Jesus. He is exclusively God. There's nothing else. Jesus is the Messiah sent to redeem sinners. Few will agree with this. If I were to say this in front of the entire population of Louisville Metro, 1.3 million people, very few of them would agree. Most would walk away. If people don't agree with you, remember, you're in good company because people didn't agree with Jesus most of the time. Remember how it always goes? Big crowd at the beginning, small crowd at the end. Remember, in John 8:58, Jesus says something that would be absolutely blasphemous in the Jewish culture of his day. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said, I am. In other words, Jesus was the one who parted the Red Sea. That's what Jesus is saying, affirming his equality with the Father. That's why he was killed. That's why he was crucified. Because he claimed to be the Messiah, and people got salty. There are so many times where Jesus could have been like, you know what, don't even bring the salt to the barbecue. i got plenty of salt right here. <laughs> people jealous. People didn't like him. Yeah, so if people don't like you, people are jealous of you. You're in good company. If someone's heart resonates with the statement, before Abraham was, I am, if your heart resonates with that, that's a very good sign. Something is good in you. I don't care how bad your credit is or LG&E is backed up. Something is very good in your life. If you say, Jesus is, I am. Second, the second indication that someone calling Jesus Lord means God has done something in them is they've chosen a polarizing truth. 
meaning they've made a very difficult decision, and they've chosen to stick with that difficult decision if they say Jesus is Lord. Remember, the thing about saying Jesus is the Messiah is that it's very polarizing. It, it creates strong emotions. You, when you hear that statement, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is I am, it's impossible to respond with indifference. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. That's cool. You don't, you don't just shrug it off. When someone says Jesus is Lord over every square inch of your life, he alone is the way that we can have access to God and forgiveness from sin, that type of statement produces very strong emotions, doesn't it? One way or the other. You don't just hear it and shrug it off. It divides. It causes tension. It's a friction-causing message. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Did you know that Jesus is Lord over every square inch of your life? If someone agrees with that and affirms that, they've made a difficult decision to be vastly rejected. Did you know that your ideas of God are wrong? Did you know that when you said Jesus was a great teacher, you were wrong and that God will probably judge you for that someday? Want to go grab dinner? <laughs> if someone has chosen to take this belief, then God has done something special in them. Three, the third indication that uh, someone confessing Jesus as Lord uh, is, is, is an a indication that God has done something in them is they've chosen to believe that there is no victory apart from Jesus. If someone has said Jesus is Lord, what they're saying is that there's no other way for me to be victorious. There's no other way for me to have fulfillment. So I have to go to Jesus. He's not just a good option, he's the only one. They've explicitly renounced any hope of building their kingdom or being self-sufficient when they say Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is good, he's my helper. But if Jesus is God, I am helpless and can only submit to him, not ask him to come alongside me in my goals and aspirations. See, a lot of people think that Jesus is a helper. He is our helper, but he's also our God. He is our helper, but we are truly helpless apart from him. He is not part of our kingdom. We are part of his. This humility, this acquiescence of one's smallness is the beginning of victory. You want me to tell you why humility is the beginning of victory? I'll tell you why humility is the beginning of victory. Here's why. The word humility it comes from a gardening word. Hummus, the stuff you put on your fertilizer, the stuff you put on the ground. It means from the earth or on the ground. That's the etymology of the word humility. If I'm humble, that means I'm on the ground looking up and seeing the God who made me. The God who owns me, the God who has given me a future. I cannot be victorious if I am looking down at my little kingdom. I can't. I cannot have victory if my life is my own. You will never have victory on your own. Even if you're famous for 20 years, 30 years, not victorious, ever, apart from Jesus. And so I lay down, I look up, I'm on the ground, I'm humble. I try to be. And I say, God, what is your purpose for me. God, work in me. Simplify me. Clear my heart. Clear my mind. Make me holy. Make me pure. Make me do what I was put on this earth to do. Help me, God. You've already made me victorious, and I'm starting here, successful in you, saved in you, and I want to do what's right. That's victory. Now, this verse also explains that one who is born of God not only sees Jesus as Messiah and Lord, right? But they also have a distinct love for those who have been born of him. This is where it gets touchy. You can love God vertically, but can you love others horizontally? This is a summary of the thought in the verses previous to this in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. If we love God, we love those who are God's. 
We love those who are God's children because we have victory and need nothing. And love is the only thing to give those around us. I am born into victory when I'm born in Jesus. I'm already complete. I'm already complete. Therefore, I love those who are children of Him who brought me into life. I love those who are children of Him. I don't seek their approval. I love them. Why am I going to seek the approval of someone who's probably seeking mine? (laughs) Why am I going to be jealous over someone who's probably jealous over someone else? How many likes do I need to feel better about myself? How many shares? How many re-grams or whatever? People are coming up with new social networks every day. I can't even follow. They're like, oh, Facebook is so 2012. What? What are you talking about? Why, if I have victory in God, am I trying to have victory by being a king in the eyes of others? When we are all under his kingship. And it's a struggle we all have. We want to be liked. We want people to think well of us. Sure, that's natural. But trying to get victory in the approval of others is like trying to hold water in a sieve. How fickle is your heart? How much can your heart change? The hearts of those you're seeking approval from change too. Up and down. That's not where you want to put your investment. Love people, but don't lean on people to be God for you. Love people, but don't ask them to be your victory for you. Love people, but let people go if they are not helping you honor the Lord. Why do I need to struggle if I'm already victorious? Why should they struggle against me? Is being born of God fully clothed in the righteousness of His Son, His wrath against my sin absorbed in Jesus, and never more mine, not enough to issue forth a life of only rest in Him and only love for His children? Or will I let sin contort my mind Take me over and make me think that his love and redemption is only some metaphor, not something that actually defines who I am, and I won't really be complete unless he or she or they love me. You are complete. Love from your completion. You are complete. Now, the inability to genuinely love other Christians is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. It means that there's something that is distorting your appreciation and acceptance of God's love that thus makes it hard to extend this love to those in your circle and beyond. You can't pour out what you don't have. And instead of gratitude and exultation in God's love, pouring that into your cup, something else is in your heart. Some other agenda, some other substance, some other need preventing you from resting in the victory God has already accomplished for you. And instead of drink water, you have a hole in your cup because you've put the acid of your selfishness into that cup and it's a bottomless hole and you're going to keep pouring approval in there and the need for recognition and respect in there and it's going to be empty in five seconds every single time. That is not victory. Victory is me letting the waves of God's love into my heart, accepting it as real and true every single day. And then I don't have to put anything else in there because that cup is already overflowing back out. Instead of seeing people as co-heirs 
with us to God's promises, instead of seeing my Christian brothers and sisters as co-heirs, I'm seeing them through my selfishness. And that's not victory. If you're a Christian, we are together. We are before God's throne. And we want each other in our life, but we don't need each other in order to feel ultimately secure. People will come and go. I will come and go. You will come and go. It's going to happen. Two people are born every second in this world. Every second. And three, uh, two people die every second, I'm sorry, and three are born every second. You know how many that is per day? Almost 200,000 people a day come into this world, die, and, 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 and over 200,000 are born every second. People are coming in and out like sand in an hourglass. We are fickle. Why does the Bible say that we're like dust? We're like chaff. It doesn't mean that we don't have value. It just means that we're, we're coming and going, and we shouldn't put so much stock in other people. Love them, serve them, but don't need them the way that you need the Lord. That's victory. Let's look at verse 2. The grammar here is strange. It's an awkward verse, right? By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. It's a little awkward. It's strange. The Greek is strange. The English is strange. But the thought is pretty clear. The thought is that love for God issues forth in love for his children and also love for and submission to his commandments. It's just constructed in a strange way, but that's the idea. I love God, I love his children, I love his commandments. It's all one thing. It's all the same heart. A love for God is a love for his people, it's a love for his commandments. It's not like I think about God one way, but I think about Christians another way, and I think about God's will another way. That's not how it works. It's, it's just one, one love. Not like Bob Marley, but one love through God. So he's pivoting from one evidence. The author, John, in this verse, verse 2, is, is, is pivoting from one evidence of loving God, which is loving his children, to another evidence of loving God, loving his commandments. That's the idea. But when we look at 1 John 2, 5, we notice something interesting. At 1 John 2, 5, this love God shapes in us is at the same time the love we have for his children and the love we have for his commandments. Again, the same thought. It's one love that we have through God, for God, by God, for his people, for his truths. In other words, if you say, I like God, but I don't like the church, you're, you, you, you're, 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 you're probably not a Christian. I was going to say you're for sure not a Christian, all right? Don't PG-13 my G. <laughs> if you say you love God, but you say, I just don't like his commandments, I think they're archaic, I think they're medieval, they're ridiculous, the world, uh, the Bible needs to come kicking and screaming into the 21st century, you are for sure not a Christian. If you say you love God, but do not love his truth for his people. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying that's what the Bible says. It's not me. Um, if I have God, if I have God's love, I love everything God loves. If I have God's love, and if I claim to love God, I love everything he loves. At least my heart's moving quickly in that direction. The way he thinks about right and wrong about people becomes the way I think about right and wrong about people. Because remember, it's him perfecting the love in you. Right? Remember this. The love you have for God's people, for God's truth, is not just you exerting this. It's not you coming up with these feelings. It's God coming up with them in you. So the logic is... If you are not sensing in yourself a love for God's people or a love for God's truth, it probably means God is not doing something in you. It probably means God is not shaping that love in you. And so it's time to run to him. Does that make sense? 
Your love is, is not just your love anymore. It's a love that God intends to build in you, a project together. So hopefully the picture is starting to become clear as we journey through these, these four or five verses. Um, victory means abiding in God. Victory means abiding in God, letting him fill your heart with his love and thinking and feeling the way he does about people. You are victorious if God is giving you his love, and that love is making you love his way and love his people. You are victorious if you are starting to see the world the way God sees the world. Now the question is, do you have a victorious mindset? Do you have a mind of victory? A mind that's consumed with and passionate about God? Passionate about the things he loves, about his people? Or do you have a mind that's in a thousand directions? Maybe falling in love with other things. If this is pricking your heart, don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. It's not a mosquito pricking you. That's the Holy Spirit. Let that turn you back to God so that he can shape your heart. Run to him. It's the safest place on earth. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 is interesting grammar again. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Ooh-wee. This is the type of verse that you could read when you're on a coffee shop doing your Bible study in the morning, and you could go over it really quickly and not notice what he just said. Look at the grammar. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Very interesting grammar here. And this translation is very faithful to the original Greek text. The love of God does not lead you in the direction of loving God's commandments. Let me say that again. The love of God does not lead you in the direction of loving his commandments eventually. The love of God is rather inextricably invested in love for his desires, his priorities, his wants, his purposes. It's impossible to love God and not love his purposes because they are the same thing. That's what this grammar is doing. The word is, for this is, pronoun this, transitive verb is, this is the love of God, loving his commandments, meaning that by loving God, I love everything that is inside God. It's one thing. It would be like saying, I, we, we went camping the other day and had s'mores. It would be like saying, I love s'mores, but I do not like chocolate bars. Do you get that logic? It's a little awkward. It would be like saying, I love s'mores, but I do not love graham crackers. You might say, I, I do not love graham crackers. And you might say, I do not love chocolate bars. But you cannot say, I love s'mores but I don't like those things. Because they are intrinsically, inextricably tied up in the identity of a s'more. So if you say, I love God, but I struggle with his desires, then you do not love God. He is his desires. He is his purposes. That is not a part of him. That is his heart. That is who he is. It's an attribute of his. These are not external to him or things he feels unsure about. God is not up there saying, uh, do I really want to save people today? Do I really feel this way about sin? I just don't know if I feel this way about sin. You know, they don't think it's a sin anymore. I just, I feel like I should maybe start changing, you know. No, he doesn't do that. <laughs> he is completely in himself, his purposes. 
That's why the transitive verb is. Love for God is love for his commandments because God is equal to part of him is his commandments. So let's be clear here. It's not some form of immaturity or some interpretive misunderstanding or some mental error to claim to love God and have his love for others while ignoring his will and his ways. That's not a sign of immaturity to say that I love God but I don't love his ways. That's a sign of salvation or not. It's not just immaturity. It's an indication of either complete failure of connection with or complete rejection of God if one claims to esteem God while not equally esteeming his commandments, his purposes. It means that either your heart is deeply messed up and needs some help, or you never connected to him in the first place. It is, according to the grammar of this text, the equivalent of saying, I love you, but I hate who you are. To say it another way, for you math people in here, there's a syllogism here. If A is B and B equals C, then A must also equal C. Stick with me here. Warm up the brain for all that football. <laughs> if A is B and B is C, then A must also be C. Consider the grammar. God is love, and love is keeping his commandments. Did you hear the ABC there? God is love, and love is keeping his commandments. Therefore, because God is inextricably connected to his commandments and his purposes, to love God is to love his commandments. That's the logical conclusion of the grammar. To love God is to love his commandments. It's important to note, really stick with me, it's not an issue of causation. It's not that if I love God, I'll eventually love his commandments, because then the grammar would have said, if you love God, you will eventually love his commandments. It says, if you love God, you love his commandments. It's simply now. It is. If you love a s'more, you love graham crackers now. You don't love a s'more and then come to love graham crackers later. It's illogical. Now, I may struggle to follow through with his commandments. I may struggle to keep them, but I don't struggle to love them. You can struggle to love your spouse at times or to follow through with all of the implications of loving your spouse, but it doesn't mean that you struggle to love them in the first place. I may not always be the most diligent husband every single day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for Mandy, but I love her deeply and I know that I must. Does that make sense? I love the commandment, the purpose of marriage, even as I struggle to fulfill it. I'm not questioning the purpose of marriage. Let's keep going here, because last time I preached for 75 minutes, and I will not do that again. <laughs> I was like, an hour and 15 minutes? Are you kidding me, bruh? So bad. But sometimes the truth takes a long time, right? Um, <clears throat> if I love God, I love his ways right now. If I don't love his ways, I don't love God. I may struggle, and I will slip, but I love his ways. I am not wrestling with his ways. I am wrestling with my sin that keeps me in the way of his ways. Catch that difference, y'all. I am not wrestling with his ways. I am wrestling with the sin between me and his ways. If I'm a Christian, I do not push back year after year against his truth. Did God really say that about homosexuality? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't push. It's the truth. It's not my feelings. It's what God says. What does God say? That's what binds me. I'm not going to do hermeneutical gymnastics or verbal gymnastics every time I read a difficult passage. God couldn't have meant that. It's, it's got to be more complicated than that. No, maybe it isn't. I think the Bible's meant to be pretty simple. Some parts are hard, yes, but the most important parts are not very hard. Um, 
So let's look at verse 4. We're going to kind of end here. <clears throat> verse 4 kind of capitulates, puts a cap on this whole passage. Uh, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So John, the author John, is kind of like a buzzing bee that's flitting around, and it's hard to always follow his train of thought. But here he's making a cap on this small train of thought. He's saying, listen, if you're born again, you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you love his commandments, and you love his people. What this means is that your love that Jesus has born in you has made you overcome the world. Because sin would take you away from his commandments. Sin would take you away from his people. Sin would keep you in a bind, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, in terms of temptation. But you have overcome the world now through your faith, through your connection to Jesus, and through the love that is now in your bones. The love that is now filling you up. It's not a random statement. The word for, when the, when the word says for, look to see what it's there for. It's the Greek word gar, and it can mean a lot of things, but in this case it means as a result of the previous statement. As a result of the previous statement. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. There's a connection between overcoming the world and obeying God's commandments. What's the connection between overcoming the world and obeying God's commandments as we saw in the previous verse? Because you have overcome the world, his commandments are not burdensome. Because you have overcome the world, you no longer need to submit to the law of sin. Because you have overcome the world and the victory has been won, you do not need to be afraid of the battle for your holiness. Because the victory is secure, you don't have to depend on or lean on people to make you feel like a worthy human being. God has done that for you already. Now, the connotation behind this Greek word overcome is a large range, a big range. It can mean a lot of things. But in this case, I think it's talking about five things. It's, it's first of all, overcoming sin. What does it mean that I've overcome? What does it mean that I have victory? One, I've overcome sin. You don't have to turn here, but look at 1 John 3, 9. Let's listen. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Meaning, you have overcome the world through your victory in faith in Jesus Christ in that you don't have to be a slave to sin any longer. You can choose to not sin if you want to. Before Jesus, you had a choice between one sin or the other. Now, you have a choice between sin or not sin. It says no one makes a practice of sinning. It doesn't mean you won't sin, but it, doesn't, it, it means that sin is now no longer the dominating force in your life. That's what it means if you've overcome the world. You have the option now to run from sin when before you had a chain attached to yourself and sin. You can run now. That's overcoming the world. Man may conquer land, but he can't conquer the heart. But if God has saved you, he has conquered your heart and overcome the world. Overcoming Satan. Let's look at 1 John 4.4. 4. Little children, you who are from God and have overcome them, for uh, you are from God and have overcome them, that means evil spirits, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is a second meaning for overcome in this verse. You have overcome Satan. He is fighting at you, he is gnawing at you, he is tugging at you, but he cannot defeat you anymore because the battle for your soul is over. So when you say, I feel Satan from the outside trying to take me down, you can be confident he won't do it. He can't do it. Just don't try to fight him yourself. Overcoming tribulation. If you've overcome the world, then you've overcome tribulation. John 16, 33. Take heart, I have overcome the world, Jesus says, when you face tribulations. It doesn't mean that you won't go through tribulations. You absolutely will. It just means that they will not have a damning effect on your soul. They won't condemn you. They won't pull you back into oblivion. Jesus has already risen above them. That means even if I die of some disease, 
I am already overcoming that disease because Jesus has saved my soul. That means Jesus has taken over every part of my body, my mind, and my soul, and I am his. So if I live to be 60 or 70 or 80, that doesn't matter because I'm already living for eternity beyond it. I have overcome that tribulation. It cannot and will not defeat me. Overcoming the law. What does the law bring? Death. The bringer of death. It shows us our insufficiency. And yet, in Jesus, we have overcome the rule of the law that shows us how bad we are. You don't know how bad you are until you see the rule book, right? And that what, that's what the law is. But God has overcome it because Jesus fulfilled the law when we did not fulfill the law. And if you're connected to Jesus, you are now saved, free from the bonds of sin and the law. God will not condemn you because you are connected to his son. He has already absorbed your sin. You have overcome. You are not overcoming the law. You have overcome the law by union with Jesus. And finally, you've overcome lies and deception. Ephesians 6, 16. The flaming arrows. Why do you think the armor of God is all defensive? He's not talking about cannons with the armor of God, is he? He's talking about shields and breastplates, things to protect us. Look at the armor of God and notice how many pieces of the armor of God are defensive in nature, made to protect us. You have overcome the flaming arrows of the evil one because God has given you his armor, his protection. When Satan lies, you know the truth. When people lie, you know the truth. I will not submit to a lie in my life. If I cannot, I will run from it because I want the truth to be the only thing in my life. I want that, and I want God to make my life that way. So, let's conclude here. You have to be absolutely committed to the truth that you are living from a place of completion and newness when you are born again. You are God's project, yes, but you are also God's perfect project. You are complete and new. If you have been born again, you have been made new, perfect in God's sight, because you have been justified, declared righteous in Jesus, meaning that in the moment of your faith, you were connected to Jesus in a way that made you something qualitatively different, an entirely different person. It's not as if in the moment of faith, you connected to Jesus and began a transfer process like you might see on a loading screen. It's not like when you connect to Jesus, it says transfer initiated, 10%, 12%, 14%, network issues, pause, red circle of death. No, when you connect to Jesus, you are entirely new, instantaneously new, perfectly new, and victorious from there on out. It was an instant transaction. You were made complete and completely different. You were and are a new creature. And because of this, you were as victorious in the moment of your new birth as you are now. United with Christ in victory over sin, wholly separated from God's wrath. God will never be wrathful against you, only loving toward you. You are victorious there. And now, he's going to work with you to chip away at the remaining sinful nature that tries to compete with your spiritual nature. Sin didn't move out, it just moved over, right? You are new and different, the sin is still there, but God is chipping away at it with you. Now, in the final verse, verses 4 and 5, it says that our faith is our victory that has overcome the world. My absolute 
submissive dependence upon Jesus. My faith. The faith that God gave me as a gift. The ability to turn from sin, to repent of building my own kingdom, and trust in Him completely. My faith. That's my victory. Because in that moment, I connect to the greatness that is God. The power of God in my faith. When you go to a concert, you see a, a, a musician, a star, performing, and you reach out and you want to touch that person. You say, oh my goodness, he touched my hand. That's faith in God. I reach out to the God of the universe. I say, I don't want to do this life anymore on my own. I don't like what my heart does every day. I don't like the places I go, the things I think about, the people I'm with, the things I talk about. I want something new and different, and I'm giving myself to you, Lord. Will you save me? Will you make me different? I don't want to have 60, 70 years of sin and an eternity in hell. I want to have 60 and 70 years of faith in you, trust in you, repentance from sin, and life in you, and then an eternity with you after. That's what I want. And when you do that, when your heart says, I'm letting go of sin, I will still struggle with it, but I'm letting go of it. It's not going to dominate my life anymore. It kills me. It's killed my family. It's killed my friends. Why am I submitting to it? I don't want that sin to rule my life anymore. I want to fight it. I don't want it to rule me. And I turn from that, and I say, Jesus, I accept your forgiveness. I, I depend on your forgiveness. What you did 2,000 years ago on the cross to remove that sin, I want you to be my new king. You're never your king. It's either sin is your king or Jesus is your king. Don't ever be deceived. I'm a king. I'm a god. No! Absolutely not. No rapper can ever say that. No, no rock star. No one is a god if they are under the bounds of sin. I turn from sin to Jesus. I want you to be my king. I want to be free in you. I want victory in you. And I want you to take me home with you forever. This is the victory of your life, your faith in Jesus, when you connected to that. And from then on out, everything else is a bonus. Everything else is a plus. Everything else is just getting other people to see the truth too. So if you feel like you don't have a sense of victory in your life, if you feel like your life is constantly underwater, like you're constantly battling struggling one thing after another it just doesn't stop I want you to stop for a moment telescope out from that and ask this question first have I truly made the commitment the commitment to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus to trust in his saving work on my behalf when he died on that cross it was for you believe that it was for you no matter what you've done Ask yourself if you've truly trusted in that work and turned to Jesus to be the Lord of your life and made a commitment to start turning. It doesn't mean you'll stop. It just means that you're turning the other way from sin to follow his ways, his commandments, to submit to his truths. If you can say yes, then I want you to rest for a second and say, I am victorious because of this. Jesus and Friends and family in the church are going to help me with the other things that I need to work on in my life, but that's my victory. That's my victory. I'm done there. And my future is secure. My greatest problem is solved. Sin is gone. Or the, pen the punishment for sin in hell is gone. And my greatest future is secure. Heaven with God. And now, I'm going to work at things one at a time. If you are struggling to believe that for yourself, we're going to have our pastors here Deacons here to pray lovingly with you, to look at the scriptures with you, to show you what you must do to be saved, to show you how you can have this victory we are talking about. And then if you're looking for a church home, we are here for you, and we would love to have you, to do life with you, to do community with you, to eat meals together, and to, to pray together, to walk in, 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 in community together.
So depend, depend this moment on Jesus. Just the way that you're depending on your chair to hold you up. Depend on Jesus in this very moment. That's victory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we accept your victory today. We know that we, if we have you, are living from victory and not for it. We are not trying to be someone, trying to be a star, trying to be a, uh, build a kingdom, trying to get people's approval. We, we, we make the decision today to say no to all that and to simply lean on you, to trust in you as the source of our victory, as the strength of our life. We want you, Lord, to take over. We want you to protect us from the very sins for which you already died. To keep us and to guard us from the sins for which we've already been forgiven if we've trusted in your son, Jesus. We want change. We want something new and refreshing in our life through you, through your power, God. If there is someone here who is struggling, I pray that you would work in their hearts to either come up and pray with us or to talk with us privately, Lord, so that they may not leave and they may not be unsure any longer. Thank you, Jesus, for the victory you have given us. We trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.